I am pleased to welcome to the podcast Detective Moses Castillo, who recently retired from the Los Angeles Police Department and who has launched his own podcast with the goal, as with mine, of giving officers a voice and telling the stories of law enforcement that don't get told. He has had some very impressive guests, including Chief Michael Moore of the Los Angeles Police Department. We will be talking about what's happening in LA in terms of unrest and calls for defunding. We'll discuss some very compelling stories from his career as a detective investigating assaults and homicides of children and his deep commitment to helping survivors and their families. And he'll share what I find to be a very charming story about why he became a police officer. Detective, welcome. Good morning. I discovered you through your podcast, which is called... The Blue Line Podcast with Detective Moses Castillo. And it seems to me that you and I have a similar mission here. So tell me your goal with your podcast. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I just uh, recently retired from the Los Angeles Police Department after uh, 30 plus years of service. And the majority of my career was the rank of detective, 20 plus years investigating uh, sex crimes and sexual assault and primarily uh, crimes against children, crimes of physical abuse, sexual abuse and uh, murder. So as you can imagine, I saw the worst of the worst. I, I left right when COVID-19 pandemic began Shortly thereafter, we had this uh, civil unrest as a result of uh, Mr. George Floyd incident. Now, when, when I got to see it from uh, the sidelines, if you will, uh, all the attacks, the anti-police rhetoric, the, the hatred towards police, strictly because of the fact of just wearing the badge, wearing the uniform. The purpose of this podcast is I really do want to be a voice uh, for law enforcement a voice that can tell the other side of the story. It breaks my heart when I just see on TV all the negative stuff, all the attacks on police. And so I wanted to be able to have a platform where we could share the human side of police work. I've never seen it this bad. So I was a brand new police officer straight out of the academy. Back in 89, it was pre-Rodney King incident and then in 1991, the Rodney King beating incident occurred. The Rodney King trial led to civil unrest. That I was with my training officer that the uh, riots broke out. As you can imagine, being a brand new police officer in the middle of this, I was kind of, I was kind of second guessing myself. What, what am I doing? I, I saw the whole city uh, burned down right before my eyes. I, I saw officers being shot at. I heard the officers on the radio requesting help. I mean, it was just chaos. It was, and what I see now, it's like we're going back to that time. And, and we're actually being accused of so many things, of uh, being racist, being uh, excessive in, in our interactions with the public. But that's, you know, further from the truth. We've been reimagining police even back then. We've made some improvements. We've made some ch- changes. We do get training on bias policing, on how to better interact with the public and try to use de-escalation. And we've been trained on using less than less lethal weapons to confront combative suspects. And sometimes the public doesn't realize that we've been doing our best to weed out those officers who we consider to be our problem officers. 
officers who don't respect the law and maybe go beyond that and, and commit acts of police brutality, acts of crime. But once we identify those officers, they, they are dealt with. They are removed. We, I really don't like it when one bad cop makes 10,000 good cops look bad. As I mentioned, you interviewed the current chief of Los Angeles Police Department, Michael Moore, and I heard you ask him if he'd ever seen anything like it, and he said no. Law enforcement is obviously under attack on all sides. You talked about elected officials. No one has the courage to say we support you. City councils there in Los Angeles, but also in other markets around the country, are trying to defund the police. So it's this sort of confluence of things where portions of the public are attacking police physically, emotionally, and on top of this is this issue of defunding. Right, absolutely. You, you know, for me, uh, that act of removing funds from police budgets throughout our country, it's more than, than the money. For, uh, I believe it sends the wrong message to the ranking file, the police officers who on a daily basis uh, wake up, uh, say goodbye to their families, to then go serve the public and then put their lives in harm's way because we're only one radio call away from paying the ultimate sacrifice. I, I remember very clearly, it was, it was like day two, maybe day three of the civil unrest, but it was a Friday evening when you began to hear the chants, defund LAPD, defund the police. And then by Saturday afternoon, uh, the mayor, Eric Garcetti here and city council members hold a press conference to announce just that, that they're going to defund $150 million from the LAPD's budget. They were bowing down to these groups who were, you know, I think it was a matter of them trying to appease them and, or maybe calm things down, but it sent the wrong message. You just don't do that, especially in a hastily uh, act without giving it some thought. But as you heard the chief say, uh, that reduction of money has had a, a huge impact already on the ability to hire uh, new police officers. They had to literally realign uh, many specialized units. So all these specialized units are directly being impacted by this. And we've seen a rise in our homicides. Uh, and, and the chief uh, predicted that uh, for the first time in a very long time, we may reach over 300 homicides here in, in Los Angeles, which we had not seen that in many, many years. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think uh, less police officers on the streets means more crime. For me, uh, it's more of a symbolic of telling the police officers that you don't matter, your lives don't matter, we don't care about you. So I, I really, to me, that defunding is more than just the money. It's, it's, it's the, the spirit behind it of, of just demoralizing our police officers, not only here locally, but throughout the country, because everyone's doing it. And, and don't get me wrong, what happened to George Floyd was criminal, and uh, it should never have happened. But quickly, even our, our national elected uh, leaders started to take steps into uh, creating some sort of national law or federal law, I should say, to, to make it uh, standard across the country of some sort of police reforms. And, and I recall a month or two after uh, George Floyd, a police officer from Tulsa was, was murdered. To me, that was a hate crime because this, this suspect who murdered 
uh, this uh, sergeant actually walked up to him while he's already down and just shot him point blank in the head uh, and killing him. You know, I didn't see anybody in the federal uh, government jump to create a federal law that would make it a hate crime. Any attack on the police is really attack on our communities. And then just locally you had, I guess it was the sheriff's deputies that were fired upon sitting in their car. Yes, uh, that was in Compton, uh, California, uh, LA County deputy sheriffs sitting in their uh, black and white SUV. The suspect walks up unexpectedly and, and, and fires point blank. And I'm just very grateful that he uh, didn't hit any fatal organs or else we would have had two uh, funerals for these deputies. And, and that is a clear example that they were just attacked by just for being a deputy sheriff, just for being a law enforcement officer. I'd be interested to know what it's like on the ground in Los Angeles. Are you seeing ongoing riots and protests as in other markets like Portland, Seattle, New York? How bad is it on the streets right now? Well, I don't think it's as bad as uh, those uh, Seattle or Portland, because I believe, at least in Portland, it's, it's on a daily basis, correct? I mean, here, uh, here it's, it's not, it's, it's sporadic, thankfully. Um, so my heart goes out to those officers because there must be a breaking point. And what people don't realize is when, when we as a police department have to respond to this kind of civil unrest, it really takes away from serving other parts of the community to respond for day-to-day -day calls for service. But here in Los Angeles, I, you know, I've spoken to several officers, and, and not only do they have to worry about being attacked by these people that just want to hurt police officers or, or kill police officers, but we're also dealing with this uh, silent killer, you know, the COVID-19. So that, that brings in another dimension in, in the interactions with the public. The other week, LAPD graduated, I believe, around 39 or 40 plus new uh, police officers. I tip my hat to them. Anyone who uh, is coming on in today's climate, they must be really special people. On a personal note, I have three three boys, uh, a 22-year-old, a 20-year-old, and, and a 14-year-old. You know, my 20-year-old, uh, before the George Floyd incident had occurred, he actually shared with me that he, he actually wanted to follow in my footsteps and uh, because he felt it in his heart. So, of course, I, I, I wanted to uh, support him, and, and, and uh, he said, nah, I changed my mind. I says, I think, uh, I think I'm going to wait until things die down a little bit. Well, that has to be very disappointing. I'm sure your son would have approached the job with the same heart that you do. So let, let's go back in time. You have a wonderful story about why you became a police officer. Could you tell me that story? Yeah, so I, I grew up in uh, East Los Angeles. Uh, it's an inner city uh, part of Los Angeles, and I was raised by a, my mom, a single parent, and uh, two older sisters. And where we grew up, it was... Uh, patrolled by the East Los Angeles deputy sheriffs. And uh, I remember seeing this one patrol deputy. He was a male Caucasian. He was tall. He was probably about six feet two, very strong. And to me, he actually looked like Clark Kent, if you will. And I just would always see him drive by my neighborhood. And every time I saw him drive by, I, you know, I would wave and he would wave back. And 
But on, on one occasion, uh, our car was stolen from inside, from within our garage. And this this deputy shows up and takes the report, and I was like, wow, now I get to see him up close and personal, and, and he looks so big, and I just, I go, man, I was, uh, well, I must have been in second grade, third grade, so seven, eight years old, somewhere around there, and, and then when a few days later we get a phone call, they're asking me to translate for my mom that, that I give this particular person permission to drive the car, and she said, no, okay, he's going to go to jail, and I was like, wow, he... He caught the guy. It's like, wow, not only did... So, you know, in my mind, I, I thought he was the one who, you know, who caught the guy and, and reported to us personally that, hey, we got him. And that planted the seed of, okay, I, I want to do that one day. I want to be able to catch the bad guy. I want to be able to help, uh, you know, the community. And because I remember I lived right next door to a gang house. And, and that gang house frequently had drive-by shootings in and. And as a kid, I remember diving to the floor just to avoid being hit because I was aware that sometimes stray bullets uh, come our way. And that was a very scary uh, place to live. And, and I, I know what it feels like to grow up in a community where you're afraid to live because of violence and, and, and criminal activity. And uh, there was two things I was afraid of uh, growing up in there. I was afraid of the gangs because I didn't want to get jumped in or I didn't want to join. But I was afraid of my mom, too. And my mom, it was more of a reverence for her. You know, like she was so strict and feminine. One time, these, these gangsters that I, that I talk about, they tagged the garage. And uh, and so she bought two uh, gallons of uh, paint and two uh, paintbrushes. <laughs> and uh, I she, she saw two gangsters walking down the street. And she grabbed them. And she said, here or the, the paint, here's the paint, go paint that off. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get killed. What are you doing, mom? And they, they actually, they go, it wasn't us, we didn't do it. I said, I don't care, aren't you, from, aren't you from that gang? And of course they didn't deny that and they did it. They actually listened to her and they removed the graffiti with, with that paint. And so, so I know what it feels like to grow up in those kind of environments. And it's, uh, so this is why, again, police officers uh, can have a positive impact and, and lo and behold, this, this deputy did. And so this deputy had that impact on you. You chose a career in law enforcement, and then you went on to touch the lives of many people and help them in ways that are quite remarkable. For more than 20 years, you investigated assaults primarily on children, as you said at the top, abuse, sexual assault, and homicide. And I would say for my listeners right now, we will not get into any graphic details of these cases, but they do involve the abuse of children. So please keep that in mind. So Detective, I know you talked in your podcast about some of your youngest victims. If you could share those stories with me now. My youngest victim of a sexual assault was a matter of four, five, and six weeks of being born. And that nobody could ever imagine even happening this baby was actually at a local hospital and the doctors were dumbfounded they couldn't figure out why this this baby was suffering episodes of where she would stop breathing unexpectedly where she would have seizure-like symptoms she had some sort of brain activity happening where they couldn't figure out but all all the tests that were run on this baby came back negative and so they couldn't figure out 
that you know what was happening. So what this hospital did was they decided to put a, a, a like a, you know, a like a GoPro camera, if you will, uh, on this baby's uh, bed at the hospital and and just record and just see see what's happening, to see what 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 may trigger these reactions. And lo and behold, when they go back to review this footage, the, the father of this baby was sexually assaulting her. Um, in the hospital? In the hospital. Oh. And I had to watch 32 hours of this uh, footage to, to see uh, how this poor child was sexually assaulted over a weekend. This, this poor baby suffered injuries to intimate parts of her body too graphic to describe, but it just uh, something that I'll never forget. So he had been assaulting her before she was in the hospital. In fact, that's probably why she was in the hospital, but they didn't know that, which is why he was still allowed to see her. Yes. And, and so this video, you know, recorded this video and audio and the stuff he was doing to her. Like I said, uh, that... It was uh, awful. I mean, I remember there was a portion of the video where even the suspect said, oh my gosh, look at her eyes. She looks like she's scared when she sees me. And uh, speaking to pediatricians and experts in this field, they tell us that babies can feel and they know. And uh, so... Who does that? It's just evil. Evil. You know, I get asked that a lot and I just say... It's evil, perversion, evil. They're just evil. This part reminds me of an interview I did with a detective who investigated internet crimes involving children. And everything that she investigated was on audio or video. And I know from talking to her that, you know, most of the time when you're a detective, you're not a witness to the actual abuse. So it's particularly difficult to watch this happen on video because you are watching the actual assault. When I interviewed her, I said, you know, I feel like to tell your story, I should see one of these videos. And she said, oh, no, no. No. It, once you see it, it doesn't, once you see it, it... You can't unsee it. Yeah, you can't unsee it, and it actually never goes away. One interesting thing about this case, I, I never uh, met the baby until... She was of age where she was beginning to walk. So you never saw her or met her while she was in the hospital. You watched the video as a detective to investigate the father. Yes, but I, I invited the mom and, and this baby to one of our uh, holiday parties that we always uh, would hold for victims of the families that we, we serve throughout the year. I was having so much anxiety uh, days before that I would actually cry. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, it's it, it just... But uh, when the day came, it was a Saturday morning, and I see mom and I see uh, this beautiful little girl who walks towards me, and uh, I kneel down and I kind of open my arms to see if she would come to me. And to my surprise, she actually did, and she hugged me, and man, oh my gosh, that was such a beautiful moment. I was happy that her not knowing me and meeting me for the very first time, she actually embraced me. And to me, that was very symbolic that it was, I thank you. 
Yeah, she knows that you saved her. How did you do that for decades? Faith, uh, family, and friends, and uh, I also had some outlets to to help me see the positive side, which I, I, I coached a youth soccer and a referee, and it was beautiful to see young children in a positive light, having fun, com- competing. That was one of my outlets. I have a routine that every Sunday uh, when I would attend a church, I gave myself permission to cry and ask God to, to clean my heart and remove all the junk, uh, evil stuff that I would see. But I would also pray for my previous victims, my current victims that I was servicing, and then the future victims uh, that are coming, because uh, unfortunately uh, they, they keep coming. So that was my way of helping me you know, process uh, all this evil stuff to continue being uh, a voice for these uh, children who had no voice. And you did that in a very special way for your youngest murder victim, a newborn. In that case that happened in 2005. Actually, it was one of my first weekends assigned to this specialized unit of investigating crimes against children. A local transient was going through trash bins. He came across a box. When he opened the box to check for recyclables, lo and behold, he saw this dead baby. He freaked out, called the police. We start to investigate it. I get there on scene and it involved a USC student the, the moment he was born, she suffocated him. And uh, we at LAPD, at the Juvenile Abuse Child Unit, we have this tradition that we do not want to leave this baby nameless because when babies are found or bodies are found, and we don't know who they are, you know, they get uh, John Doe names or John Doe number. And we didn't want him just to be a number. So the investigating officer assigned to the case is the one who is allowed to uh, name the baby. And I named him uh, Michael. The reason I named him Michael is the person who found the baby. Uh, that was his name. And so to honor him for doing the right thing. Aw. Those were two of your youngest cases. They were a couple of years apart. You mentioned in your podcast that 2016 was one of your hardest years. Yes. <laughs> I'm already getting emotional again just thinking about it. But yes, in uh, the summer of 2016, I was uh, the supervisor uh, assigned to the abuse child unit of LAPD's uh, juvenile division. And and on this particular summer, we had the, the murder of Jonathan Aguilar. He was an 11-year-old boy who was found dead in a closet. He was known as the little boy in the closet from Echo Park. When we found him, he actually weighed 33 pounds or so. So he died of a severe malnourishment. He was starved to death. And uh, the condition we found him is, is just uh, deplorable conditions, are very awful. At, at first glance, we thought he was abused because he was just purple, black and blue all over. But come to find out that that wasn't signs of physical abuse, but signs of the, the body decomposing, if you will. Yeah, so that was very tough. And then on October 31st, the murder of, I always refer to her as Baby Ruby. Ruby was three years old. Her parents both worked at a local seamstress. Uh, they worked there and so did this suspect that uh, had only 
been there for a couple of weeks, so nobody really knew him. And so what happened on this particular day, Ruby's father went to the daycare to get Ruby. On the way back to the place of business, the father takes Ruby to a local store and buys her a, a little pack of cookies. So, when Ruby gets to back to the place of business, she goes straight to her mom's workstation and shares the cookie with her mom. And she says, Mommy, I'll be right back. I'm going to go give a cookie to, to my dad, to my daddy. So she walks over to her dad's workstation, gives him a cookie. And that was her last act of her life. She gives the cookie to her dad and walks away, going back towards her mom's workstation. And that's when uh, Ricardo Butoy, for unprovoked, unknown reason, he just attacks her, stabs her three times at, at, at knife point. And at first, mom thought he had just hit her because she went down. And she's like, why, why are you hitting my daughter? And then the mom sees the blood and mom picks up her daughter and starts screaming and Cry for help. Yeah. And this guy flees the scene and he takes off. I'm actually speaking to Jonathan's, you know, I mentioned Jonathan uh, Aguilar. Uh, I was actually talking to Jonathan's stepfather when I hear the radio broadcast, the calls come out of this of this call of a child being stabbed. And I'm meeting with Jonathan's father to give him some news about some developments in the investigation where Jonathan's mom was actually arrested and charged for the murder of Jonathan. So anyways, I'm talking to the father, and I remember telling him, oh my God, I just heard a radio call come out. I just hope they don't give that to me. Because it sounded, it sounded awful. And lo and behold, I get the call, and it's my case. So the, there was a manhunt issued right away. Many officers came up to me saying, sir, we're not going home until we catch the guy. So I love my my uh, brother officers, sister officers, who, when when the bell rings, they answer it. They answer the call, and it breaks my heart because those are the very same people that, you know, are coming under attack, uh, not only by criminals but sometimes our own city leaders, and they're the ones that they want to defund us and and and, and demoralize us that way. So yeah, so eventually we ended up. I think he felt the pressure because we were onto him. And he actually ended up surrendering with uh, the knife and a gun. Uh, speaking to this guy reminded me of a case many years ago where I felt I spoke to the devil himself. And as soon as I walked into the interview room to talk to him, I could feel that same evil spirit. I just can't describe it other than you just know it. You could feel it. He confessed to everything he did and why he did it. And... Uh, you know, he was into this uh, Ouija board thing, and you know, it was Halloween, and he just said that, you know, his daughter was removed from him by the Department of Children and Family Services. He wasn't allowed to be around her. And he just felt that if, if he couldn't have his daughter, then this family couldn't have their daughter. That was his rationale, his, his evil rationale. And so that year was very, very heavy for me. I, I remember, so this happened on... Going back to Ruby's case, it happened on October 31st, and then 
Obviously, the next holiday we, we celebrate is Thanksgiving. I, I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't celebrate. <laughs> I remember uh, being in our family gathering, and we had, you know, all the aunts, the cousins, the uncles, and everybody's having a good time, and I, I just couldn't get into it. I, I, I withdrew from the family. I, I just sat there and wanted to be alone. I just remember thinking, how can I celebrate Thanksgiving and Ruby's family and Jonathan's family? They don't get to celebrate Thanksgiving. And that's the side that uh, people don't see of law enforcement. That's really so tough. So very tough. Oh, there was so much emotion for you. When the tears come like that, can you tell me what you're feeling? The pain. The pain that... Uh, the families uh, suffered, and the pain's real. I mean, uh, I almost forgot to share uh, why Ruby's case, not only was it very sad and very tragic, but there was a personal connection that, that connected Ruby and I together. So that night, as you imagine, we worked around the clock. We, I, you know, I didn't go home that night. I got a phone call early that morning, the next day at 7 a.m., by a social worker inquiring about the status of the investigation, informing the social worker that in this case, it's not a family member, it's not a parent, so there's really no need for them to get involved. I said, however, you probably have Ruby's uh, date of birth information, can I please have it? I'm working on some paperwork. And the social worker, sure, I'll give it to you. And then she says, July 17, 2013, my heart sank. That's my birthday. Wow. Yeah. From that moment on, it really changed the dynamics uh, uh, for me. Because before that, I was just, my mindset was, get this guy, get this guy. But I didn't have a chance to really allow the emotional part of it to process in my own body and until that moment. It really, and then the social worker actually noticed it. I do have a special bond with that family, and, and I could tell that they appreciate me, and they appreciate you know everything that we did for them. You know, we stay in contact, whether it's a phone call, a text message. Th these are bonds that last forever, and it's something that helps me continue to do what I'm doing. Because even now, even though I retired from the police department, I, I still help victims of of sex abuse uh, on the civil side. And, 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 it's, and it also sends a message to, to them, to the family, that their precious little baby, Ruby, mattered. And we're not allowing her life or her memory to, to fade away. So I think that's also uh, very healing for me, as it is for, for the family. Right. I agree. Um, you know, and I see how much pain this puts you in. What kept you going in... I, I gather by what you're saying, the rewards, some of them may have been closure for the family, making sure you got the perpetrator. What kept you going and what I can hear what the hard parts were. What were the good parts? What were the rewards? What helps me is that knowing that the work that we did did bring some sort of hope to a family in, in a time where there was no hope. You say closure, but there is no closure in these cases because they get to live with this for the rest of their life. I mean, there's closure as far as justice. It's, these cases are, are, are tough, and this is why we need great people to become great police officers, and I want, I want them to know that they can have uh, an impact, that they have no clue 
how much of a blessing they could be to a family. My motto was always on my business card and said, investigating the most important case, yours. Every case you get should be the most important case you investigate. Because when you have that attitude, but more than likely you can do everything you can to solve it, to prosecute it, to get some justice, especially for, for those victims that don't have a voice anymore. Well, one of the reasons I wanted you to tell your, these stories, I want people to see how human you are, you know, and what a good person you are and what you as a police officer in the name of helping people have personally suffered, you know, the sacrifice, the commitment, you know, I want people to know that this is what police officers do. And this seems to be lost on everyone. And even in your podcast, you said, do you know who responds to these calls, to these 911 calls? It's patrol. Right. You know, you defund, then you, you eliminate that first line of defense. Right. Officers going to these calls, there may not be enough of them. They may not be able to take the time. Right. They may um, decimate, you know, units like yours where someone like you has done so much. Right. It's, it's one of those things where I'm glad that we were, we're doing this type of uh, podcast. Hopefully people listen to it and, and receive the message because it's time for the majority of the law enforcement supporters to be more vocal, to be more appreciative. And then uh, when you see a police officer, a hello, a thank you, can go a long way. I remember um, recently there was a support LAPD rally and uh, I remember uh, bringing a couple that came from a good distance. I introduced them to this female officer and I said, officer, this couple came from far away and then as you see this group around you here, the, you know, there was hundreds of people there, maybe about 500 people uh, showing their support. What does that do for you when you see this and she actually fought back to tears when she said, it gives me hope. So that gesture of saying thank you and showing support was going a long way. And she fighting back tears telling me, when I see this, it gives her hope and a greater resolve to continue to fight the good fight. Like I said, for many of us, it's not just a job, it's not just a career, but it's our calling. And sometimes they might say it's not worth the risk anymore. Well, and the sad part about this to bring it back to your son a year or two ago you might have been thrilled for your son to join law enforcement i mean what a loss there right 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 i do want to just ask you know with black lives matter and black and brown men feeling mistreated by police so you are latino and you are a police officer do you share those views? Did you find, I mean, you had a great story of your admiration for that officer who inspired you. Did you feel growing up or in your life any kind of mistreatment by police because of your race? Not at all. And uh, I just remember anytime, even my friends in the neighborhood, if they got in trouble, it's because they were doing criminal stuff. I, I've never seen it. I've never seen one of my peers or officers on, on the police department come out and treat somebody differently or, or negatively just because of the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or whatever it may be. I do have hope that things are going to get better. 
I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah, well, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And like I said, we're only one officer involved shooting away from another civil unrest. It's a lot more complicated to investigate these because, as you remember, we, we treat these very, very seriously. We don't take it lightly when especially an officer has to use a deadly force. We're very transparent when it comes to these investigations and very thorough. But when we have to contend with riots and, and it makes these investigations a lot more complex because we still have to preserve the crime scene. We still have to preserve evidence. And it just makes it a lot more harder. Well, and what's really frustrating is that people have lost sight of the fact that use of force, including deadly use of force, is occasionally necessary. Yes. Uh, case in point, just recently we had a San Bernardino case where an officer was wrestling with the suspect and the suspect pulled out a gun and the officer shot the suspect and unfortunately that person uh, died as a result of that uh, and right away people showed up and started creating a, uh, a riot scene without even waiting for some of the facts to come out. We're not going to wait for them to shoot first. That's not going to happen. Had this person just complied, he probably would have been charged with a uh, misdemeanor. Uh, people are just looking for an opportunity to create chaos and facts don't matter. Is there a message you want to send to your fellow officers who are out there? I, I salute them. I, I salute for everything that they do and that they continue to fight the good fight. To my peers in uh, Seattle and Portland and the other cities, my heart goes out to you guys. Be there for one another because obviously our, our city leaders have failed us. They have abandoned us. They've betrayed us. we got to back up each other. So the call comes out, officer, officer down, officer needs out. We all run to that. And that's what we're dealing with. We are dealing with an officer needs help. That's exactly where we are. That is exactly where we are. Detective, I thank you for your service, for continuing to tell the stories through your podcast, and for being here with me today. Well, thank you. It was great having Detective Moses Castillo on the show today. The Blue Line podcast with Detective Moses Castillo can be heard on KABCLA's website, and you can find him wherever podcasts are available. You can follow him on Twitter with the handle at Detective Moses. And while you're at it, you can find me there as well on Twitter at Abby Ellsworth13 or by searching on being a police officer, all one word. I look forward to seeing you there and of course right back here for my next episode.